This event was recorded live at the 2019 Edinburgh International Book Festival, a 17-day celebration of words and stories welcoming authors and audiences from around the globe. You can hear more events by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or Acast, and watch event videos at edbookfest.co.uk and on YouTube at edbookfest. Well, good morning, everyone. Thank you, thank you, and welcome to uh, one of the first sessions at the Edinburgh International Book Festival 2019. Thank you for coming and uh, choosing to spend your morning with us. Um, On behalf of uh, the Edinburgh International Book Festival, I would like to welcome back the amazing Fatima Bhutto. Um, Who will be speaking to us about her second novel, The Runaways, which is this beautiful book. So the format of the session will go like this. I have the privilege of um, saying uh, a few introductory words um, about Fatima and her work. Um, And then Fatima is going to treat us to a reading, or maybe two if you're good. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) um, um, I will um, ask some questions, and then there will be plenty of time for you to ask questions of Fatima, if you you like, and I'm sure there will be quite a few. Um, May I please uh, remind everyone to turn off your mobile phones? If we hear a phone ring... Whoever's phone it is, is going to go in Fatima's next novel and my next novel (laughs) as the villains of the piece. Let me me warn you. But uh, you can turn your phones on silent and you're welcome to tweet, I think, after uh, Fatima has finished speaking and reading. During the Q&A is fine. Um, Also, Fatima will be signing books um, at the Garden Bookshop. So basically just follow her after the event, all of you, okay? (laughs) So Fatima Bhutto is the author of a number of award-winning fiction and non-fiction books. Her first novel, Shadow of the Crescent Moon, was shortlisted for the Bailey Prize and won the Prix de la Romancière in 2014. Fatima is a graduate of Columbia University and SOAS in London, and she is the granddaughter of Pakistan's first democratically elected head of state, Zulfikar Ali Bhutto. I know that many are interested in the Bhutto family. I know because I interviewed Fatima in Sydney and then I got kind of, you know, there were lots of people talking to me, hoping to get an in with her through me (laughs) to ask her questions about her family. Um, I would strongly recommend buying and reading this very, very moving memoir, uh, Fatima's memoir, Songs of Blood and Sword, a daughter's memoir. It's a very powerful and moving book. Today, though, Fatima is here to speak to us about her second novel, The Runaways. Uh, The book is a stunning and very timely chronicle of the roots to terror in our contemporary society. And it has particular resonance in the UK with the ongoing Shamima Begum case, but really it is relevant to our experience um, in our contemporary world transnationally. Uh, The Runways is also a story about the particular spectacle of violence fueled by the search for notoriety that our social media-enabled society has thrown up. The Christchurch massacre is only one in a line of many incidents that come to mind. The Runways is an exceptionally moving book, scathingly critical and funny, satirical in parts, 
as it is compassionate and provocative. The novel revolves around the lives of three millennials, Anita Rose, Sunny, and Monty. Um, and the book is set um, in different parts of the world, including here in the UK in Portsmouth, in Karachi, and at a jihadi training camp in Mosul. I think Fatima Bhutto writes within an affective framework that speaks of individual lives intersecting with contemporary geopolitics, exploring various facets of individual and collective communitarian identity in a way that is surprising and delightful, uh, but also in a way that evokes deep understanding and then moves beyond empathy. So we often get told that you know, literature is a way of um, instilling empathy, uh, but I think the achievement of this book is it moves beyond empathy to provide a critical space for us as readers to engage with characters we might not agree with, or maybe we do agree with, we find sympathy for, empathy for maybe, but also it draws attention to the very asymmetrical lives that we lead and the characters in, uh, in relation to the characters in Fatima's book. Uh, so, Fatima, welcome back to Thank Edinburgh. Uh, and if you would like to read now, mm -hmm. that would be wonderful. Okay. The desert late at night is quiet and dark, the only light coming from a small fire Sunny built and the glow of his phone. Sonny taps his tumbler open and tries to upload a photo. A tabby curled up near his Rita. Rita's what he calls his Kalashnikov. He found the little kitty on her own in the middle of nowhere. As soon as she saw Sunny, she came and rubbed her ragged body against his leg. Hashtag jihad tourism. Hashtag cats of jihad. I'm just going to, this is my last digression, but cats of jihad is an actual hashtag that was used by ISIS fighters, because obviously they're cat people. <laughs> Come to Iraq, see the world, ha ha. But he's straining against this shit edge network, Iraq's interconnection like Chinese water torture. Sunny refreshes the page, refreshes the page, refreshes the page. In the time it's taken him to get back to Tumblr, four minutes later, his photos got reblogged and the like button is lit. One note, then five, then eight. The only thing he has going for him since coming out here is that his socials have been ablaze. Whatever dead nerve ending Sunny has, whichever bits of him have gone numb, just got defibrillated and resurrected. Resurrected. He was about to become an influencer. Sunny clicks on the notes. Man, I wish I was a warrior out there too, fighting the crimes against my people. Inshallah, brother, you should make the journey, he types back, feeling fresh and generous. Bismillah, a bunch of girls write, presumably about the cat. Loads of smiley faces with hearts popping out of their eyes. I think what you are doing is great work, writes some nerd. But how can a true Muslim movement equip its fighters with Kalashnikovs, weapons invented by the biggest atheists on earth? Sunny sits up properly to think of a reply. A lot of people are checking into his feed now, and he has to sound right. Sound woke, be an inspiration to his fans, bless them. He picks at a tin of tuna with a plastic fork. Brother, Sunny finally types, a smear of sunflower oil on his fingers. When you crawl out of your suburban living room, let me know, and we can discuss the matter further. 
Inspired, he moves closer to the fire for some crucial atmospheric light, taps the record button on his Snapchat, and props Rita up next to him, holding his phone out in front of him. He repositions his automatic weapon and takes a photo, editing the picture to lighten the frame and do away with the shadows between Rita and him. But he can do better. Monty, Sonny calls out. Give me your AK a second. Monty is lying on his side watching Sonny. He rolls his eyes. Sonny, come on. Come on, nothing. Sonny stands up and looks for something to lean against. It's part of the battle, Monty. Just grow up already and give me your AK. Monty trudges towards Sonny and slips his machine gun off his shoulder. How are selfies a part of the battle? He asks wearily. Sonny straps Rita over his left shoulder and hitches Monty's AK onto his right. Ever heard of propaganda, Monty? Wasn't that stunning? <laughs> Thank you. As you would have heard from the reading, these characters could really be our brothers and sisters and children. Um, and yet they're not. And I think there are very specific reasons for that. Um, uh, there's this real interrogation of... Um, um, the Marxist underpinnings, really, of this book point to uh, class hierarchies, you know, as the roots and of some of the th themes that are explored in the book. Mm -hmm. uh, there's the idea of uh, the desire of wanting to be rendered visible mm -hmm. uh, to people who have been denied a voice and a presence for centuries. Mm. Uh, there's the idea of what some people call performance crime, where the live streaming of the crime is as important as the crime itself, the search for notoriety. Um, I'll shut up now, but ask Fatima <laughs> to, to just tell us a little bit, mm. um, I suppose, about um, the characters in the book and why you chose these yeah. particular characters. Well, I think it's true that um, the underpinnings for this kind of radicalism are not what we've been told for the last 20 years, um, or in fact, any radicalism. So the, the narrative has always been really singular, and it's, it's been repeated to us ad nauseum that if you are a radical, this is probably because you are a Muslim, and this is somehow intrinsic to your belief or your faith, and this is a, this is a pretty automatic outcome yeah. of being a Muslim. I mean, there are obviously 1.2 billion Muslims in the world, so that just, it can't be true, number one. But number two, it ignores the fact that it isn't religion that inspires radicalization. It's actually inequality. It's a raging inequality. Um, it's anger. It's impotence. Mm. It's humiliation. Um, it's not being given a space in which you are allowed to be a part of your future or the vision of your future. And, you know, when your country or your society or your community denies you a space to create your place in the world, your place in the future, then you will be vulnerable to anybody who offers you that space. I think there is a profound loneliness as well in, in, in the way in which we live in the modern world, um, in a way in which people are constantly searching for a way to be seen, to be noticed, to be heard, to be part of the conversation. And part of what is so seductive about these radical groups, okay, maybe not to me and maybe not to you, because we have other forums in which we are heard, is that they approach young and dispossessed people by saying, you don't have a place there, but we'll give you a place. And that place will not only be open to you, and you will not only be free there, but you will be powerful. And I, I think this is true whether we're talking about people going out to join, you know, these runaways going out to join jihadi groups. 
I think it's true when we look at these neo-Nazis. You know, I just don't like the term white nationalist. Mm. What does that even mean? Mm. I don't even like the term white supremacist because, like, supreme is a good word because of Diana Ross mainly. But, <laughs> but you know, let's just call them what they are. Let's use the language in a correct way. I think, you know, if we look at this, you know, El Paso shooter who we saw recently, I mean, you know, you're talking about migrants invading you and you're talking about the dangers of race mixing. That makes you a neo-Nazi, I think. Mm. And I think the same thing is, seduces those young men, which is they feel a part of a world that no longer includes them. And they wish to create a new space where they will be included. Mm. And that's, for me, across, across mm. the board. Yeah. And what's interesting is the way in which they uh, create this new space. The, yeah. the role of social media is so strong. And, and uh, you write quite satirically and yet quite profoundly about this um, intertwining of social media and crime. You know, they made me cut a bunch of stuff. I, I even wrote a TED Talk because I thought <laughs> <laughs> it's only a matter of time uh, before you have TED Talks on the, on the topic. But... Uh, yeah, I think the performance, the spectacle, you know, terrorism has always included an element of the spectacle. Um, its, its beginnings, really, had this element of performance and shock. And, and again, we see that repeated over and over again. And it, across the board, so Omar Mateen, who was the young man who went into the Pulse nightclub in Orlando, kept stopping his carnage to check his Facebook to see if he had gone viral. Um, you know, the New Zealand shooter, Brenton Tarrant. And this is another thing I disagree with. Why do I know Omar Mateen's name? Because they've said it nonstop on the news. But I don't know the New Zealand shooter's name. Because somehow that's too dangerous for us to repeat. Um, so Brenton Tarrant not only wrote a manifesto, which he wrote in FAQ form, you know, as though he was at a press his own press conference, and he asked questions like, are you a terrorist? And then he answered them. His answer, by the way, was yes. Um, he not only had a manifesto written in this kind of grandiose way of a back and forth press conference, but he also live streamed his carnage. You know, he hooked up a body camera to himself before he went into that mosque to kill innocent uh, men uh, in prayer. So this is a constant um, this, is a, this is constantly repeating. And, of course, the language in which we approach them is different. The terror we allow them is different. The words we use to describe them is different. But, but the method and the spectacle is very much the same. Mm, yeah. And I'm really interested in the pro your process of writing these characters and writing about these really traumatic, troubling, confronting yeah. uh, processes. Um, uh, can you tell us a little bit about the research you did? Yeah. Um, well, I, I, I did a lot of research at the beginning and then, and then kept up, you know, being in this world throughout the process of writing. And I watched a lot of the videos that they, that they make. And, you know, in the, in the early days, so after 9-11, you know, um, 2004, 2005, when you had those first terrifying videos, they were pretty choppy, and the, the, the camera angles were shaky. Um, and they've changed now, so they're the Hollywood version uh, of the same thing. So it's shot in HD, they use drones for aerial shots, they're subtitled, by the way, in multiple languages, um, they'll have music, they'll have soundtracks. Mm. Um, 
And again, you know, there are very, you know, ISIS at least is a very modern organization. It's not a backwards organization. And that's part of the misinformation. Again, part of their appeal is their modernity, modernity is that they appeal to you in the same way advertisers do mm-hmm. or, you know, blockbuster movies do. They're, they're looking for the same impulse in their audiences. So I watched a lot of those videos. And, what, and I read the blogs. And when I was doing the research was a couple of years ago, so it hadn't all been taken down, as a lot of it has been now. But it wasn't the violence that shocked me because we've been watching these kind of videos since the Iraqi invasion. You know, we remember the videos of US soldiers giggling as, as they shot targets from their plane. So the violence is everywhere, and I think we are in some ways numb to it. It wasn't the violence in the videos that disturbed me, um, but it was these strange kind of confessional moments in them. Mm. Because again, their impulse is the same as millennials everywhere, which is celebrity mm. and virality. So in the same way that a girl on vacation is taking a picture of her smoothie and her swimsuit, you know, and, 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 and teasing jealousy out of you mm. um, for this great life she has, they're doing the same thing. Mm. Mm. You know, they walk around their camps, they should we eat here and we sit there and you know, this is where I call my mom. They're really obsessed with their moms, I noticed. And they're really obsessed with cats, obviously, as I've said. <laughs> this is not a personal thing, but mm-hmm. it is interesting to me. And, and, they, and they, you know, they were asked, um, in some cases, there was this one Dutch fighter who, who has since died in Syria, I believe, who had been in the Royal Netherlands Army, born there, brought up there, and he, he leaves that to go to Syria. And, you know, they asked him what he missed. And again, besides his mom, he missed... It's true. They don't ever say they miss their fathers. But anyways, um, they asked him what he missed. And he said, you know, I really miss um, something really ordinary like Nutella. You know? And he was sort of complaining about the Skype connection. And that, to me, was very jarring Mm. to see. And so that research was very weird and very strange. And he used to do these AMAs, you know, these Ask Me Anythings on Twitter. And again, it wasn't like, oh, how do I best kill, you know, infidels? It was like, how do you get married out there? Mm. <laughs> and he had all this advice about marriage. And that was, for me, completely unexpected mm. and yeah. disturbing, yeah, that's, actually. That's really interesting. It's almost as if it's so banal. This yeah. is referencing Hannah Arendt talking about the banality of evil in relation to the Eichmann trial. But this is the banality of the route to terror, yes. you know, which comes through quite strongly in the book. Yeah. And it's these things, missing Nutella and yeah. you know, thinking about ordinary things, which you don't really expect. You think, as, an, as someone from the outside, you think, oh, they're all evil monsters who will kill you when they see you. you know? Absolutely. And I think, you know, one of, the, one of the most interesting cases was of these two young men. I'm forgetting now where they left from. They left from the UK. They were, they were English men. And before they boarded their planes out to Turkey or wherever they then went onwards to their training camps, they bought uh, Jihad for Dummies off of... Uh, not Jihad for Dummies, sorry. The Quran for Dummies oh. off of Amazon. Uh, Islam for Dummies off of Amazon. Mm. I mean, mm. that's the level. And, you know, they, yeah. they've done studies as well where, you know, recovering all these ISIS documents. ISIS would do a kind of analysis of the people coming in to join them. And something like 70% of them scored a below basic understanding of religion. 
So they, they're not coming for belief. They're not mm. coming for ideology. They're coming mm. for visibility, for mm. power, for mm. inclusion. Mm. And, you know, those are banal things, yeah. really, in the yeah. end. Just yeah. wanting to be part of something. Yes, absolutely. Pretty ordinary. As old as the hills, or yeah. possibly even older. Yeah. Um, which m makes me think about um, the roots that mm. lead to this sort of banality and the idea of terror as a product that's being sold to particular audiences. Yeah. You know, notoriety, celebrity, virality as a product. Yeah. You know, if you want that, this is what you do and this is the route to it. But that's the culture we live in now. Yeah. The culture we live in is how do you get your Facebook posts seen by more people? You know, how do you get more followers? How do you tell people where you are at all mm. times? How do you share every experience with an audience of some friends and a lot of strangers? Mm. Um, you know, the idea that, that we have to place ourselves in the center of everything mm. and then somehow promote ourselves as, an exper as experiencers yes. um, is, is the entire culture. And so naturally it would, it would translate itself to other things. Two things like violence, two things like mm. terror. I mean, they got kicked off of Instagram pretty quickly, but they survived for a long time on Tumblr. They survived for a long time on Twitter. Um, Facebook, I think, mm. hit and miss. Mm. But you don't, you, don't have to, you don't have to search for violence in our culture. Yeah. It's, it's, it's given to you constantly at every turn. This is entertainment for us. Why mm. wouldn't they also treat it as entertainment? Yeah. Yeah, you know. Um, I feel that in your book you also present, uh, in a very literary way, some alternative ways to think about this and think through this, and that is through poetry, mm. through the work of um, uh, some very highly regarded poets in South Asia, uh, mm. Habib Jalil, Fares, mm. Ahmed Fares. Um, mm. I would love for you to talk to us a little bit about that and the inclusion of the work of Habib Jalil and um, Fares in your book. Yeah, well, I think at the same time as there is a story of these young people trying to make a space for themselves as some kind of radicals, in the culture that I'm from, there is a real space for radicals. And those radicals were often men and women of letters. Um, so Habib Jalib was a poet um, who wrote blistering verses against dictatorship against the Pakistani military. Um, we had a CIA-backed dictator through the late 1970s and much of the 1980s called General Ziaul Haq. And Habib Jalib's verses against Zia and what he stood for and against imperialism and colonization rallied generations of people resisting the dictatorship. Mm. So we do have an experience of what real radicalism means, and it's not violence, and it's not terror, and it comes from this beautiful impulse in us. Mm. Um, you know, in Pakistan today, you put on the TV at 11 at night, there's still broadcasts of Habib Jalib's poetry, of him reading his poems, you can see it on YouTube. Um, Fez Ahmed Fez, again, is another poet who wrote against the dictatorship of the 1980s. And he wrote this beautiful poem called Ham Dekenge, which means we will see. Oh, goosebumps. I, me too, actually, <laughs> when I say it, I have goosebumps. And it's about, it's about um, tyranny and the untenability of tyranny and how all dictators must fall and will fall swiftly. And 
it was not only a revolutionary act to write that poem at the time he did, but Iqbal Banu, a very famous singer in Pakistan, sang the poem uh, in front of a crowd in Lahore and was banned from ever appearing in public to sing under the, di di the dictatorship because of that. So in, in the culture I come from, we have myriad ways of resisting yeah. oppression, injustice, and yeah. they are not violent. Yes. And we are never allowed those spaces mm -hmm. because that's not a great narrative that fits the mm -hmm. CNN, you know, um, State Department kind of model. And so it was important for me to talk about that and yeah. to talk about what it means. Yeah. You know, we, again, it, it's not just poets. In, in the 1980s, the Pakistani press was incredible. So they had to submit themselves to twice daily censorship checks. Some papers had morning editions and evening editions. Um, so they had twice daily and some, anyways, were just always mm -hmm. kept track of. And anything critical of the dictatorship, in the slightest way, you know, the reporting of a Iqbal Bano concert was slashed. And so what the papers started to do is they started to go to print with empty white boxes. Mm. So you would open a broadsheet and it would just be white, 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 mm. and then two bits of news somewhere in the middle. And the dictatorship said, well, this isn't funny. And actually now it's against the law to print empty spaces in newspapers. <laughs> and so they said, okay, fine. And in all the empty spaces, they put pictures of donkeys. <laughs> you know, so this, so this is the culture we come from. And this is how we have historically resisted <laughs> yes. ugliness. Yeah. And so it was very important. I wrote about that in Songs of Blood and Sword, but it was important for me to remind people of that because yeah. as, a, as a, 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 an Asian person, as, as a brown person, as a Muslim, I'm always asked things like, oh gosh, it must be so nice for you to come here, you know, and you must enjoy using words instead of guns. And, and I just think it's always horrifying to me how simplistic the idea of us is mm. yeah. outside. Mm. And... Okay, you didn't ask a question, but I'm going to answer it anyways. <laughs> I, think, I think this is part of a general, a general thing. We are not allowed our innocence. Mm. You know, we, are, we are always having to be careful. We are always having to be alert. We always have to use the right words. We have to say the right things. We cannot be misunderstood. But white people are allowed to be innocent forever. I mean, they were allowed to wake up after the El Paso shooting and say, oh, we're shocked. How'd this happen? <laughs> and it's the 251st mass mm. shooting in 216 days. How can yeah. you be shocked? Yeah. How are you allowed your innocence in perpetuity? Mm. You know, how are you allowed mm. to constantly wonder mm. um, about the violence that your cultures not only enact against others, but inspire and suffer yourselves? I, I mean, that for me is shocking. Yeah, I think that's a really, really powerful point, which completely resonates with me. Uh, the idea of being allowed to be innocent yeah. and being allowed to just say, you know, don't well, know, don't care. I'll almost. give you a good example that comes around the topic of the runaways. You mentioned Shamima Begum yeah. earlier. I mean, you all know who Shamima Begum is, of course, but for the one person who might not... Okay, there is. There you go. So Shamima Begum um, was a was a schoolgirl from Bethnal Green, and she and several other schoolgirls ran away to join. Okay, you know, see, everyone knows. So uh, <laughs> ran away to join uh, ISIS, and uh, I think the other two girls died. Shamima Begum got married. All three of her children died before the age of two years old um, from malnutrition, disease. 
She was found in a refugee camp, and you know she was 15 when she left. She's a clearly disturbed young girl, mm. um, and and she expressed her wish to return home. Now she's born in Britain. She was educated in Britain. She grew up in Britain. Britain is a part of her radicalization, and yet the British Home Secretary said she should go to Bangladesh, which is a country her parents come from, but she's never even visited, mm. right? Shamima Begum is still in a refugee camp. Um, and at the time that she had expressed this wish to come home, and by all means, she should be jailed, she can be taken to court, doesn't mean you welcome her home with a parade or anything. But this is her country, so her country is responsible for her, whatever it is that she's done. Her youngest child had just been born. Mm. And in this back and forth of you can't come back, and no, we're taking away your passport, they stripped her of her passport, the, the child died, her last child died. At the same time as this story was going on, there was a young man called Jack Letts. Now, do you know who Jack Letts is? <laughs> yeah? So Jack Letts is a, a dual citizen of Britain and Canada. Neither country stripped him of either passport. Okay? He did not go out there to, to marry somebody from ISIS. He went out to fight. We don't know if he killed anybody, but he certainly threatened people with violence. He expressed the wish to kill people. Um, but he's white. His parents have just been uh, convicted, I think, of two counts of funding terrorism because they sent him money while he was out there, and they knew very well where he was. So it's not like they thought he was on summer vacation and sent him a thousand pounds for groceries. Um, can you imagine if Shamima Begum's parents had sent her money? What would have happened to them? Hmm. Would they have been allowed to stay in the United Kingdom? I mean, I don't think so. Um, as far as I know, Jack Lett's parents will not serve jail time. Mm. I mean, there's no question that Shamima Begum's parents would not have gotten away with a, a warning and a fine or time served. Mm. Um, and that's part of the thing. There's an innocence that Jack is allowed. Jack mm. is allowed, and you know, he gave interviews like Shamima did, and Jack Lett's went on TV and said, gosh, I'm sorry. Yeah. I, didn't, I didn't know, and I regret it. Shamima Begum said the same thing. But all the stories where she's unremorseful, face of evil, you know, demonic, mm. bride of terror, yeah. not Jack. Mm. You know, his parents were just, they were interviewed in The Guardian or The Observer. I don't know if any of you saw this a few weeks ago. And the picture of them is like them sitting, you know, on the windowsill of their house, looking out into the distance. Mm. You know, it's yeah. not them in tears no. the way, the way a, a brown person would have had to yeah. appear mm. in order for a hearing. Yeah. yeah, absolutely, completely agree. And it's that hypocrisy, this double standards that's kind of historically going back centuries mm. um, that I think you interrogate in a really beautiful literary way in this book. Um, and I wanted to ask, mm. and before we move on to questions from the audience, about the title. Mm. The Runaways. Because there's a lot of... Um, a lo the characters, the, there's the sense of grappling with identity. Mm. Um, you know, uh, thinking proudly of themselves as one type of person or the other, sometimes mm. shamelessly rejecting mm -hmm. certain parts of their identity. Uh, but uh, there's also the sense of um, almost, you know, the inevitability of um, needing to not run away in yeah. some ways. So would you like to tell us about the title? Um, well, you know, titles are always a sort of fraught exercise. It wasn't my first title. I wanted to call it... Well, actually, you know, every section of the book, 
um, there's several sections of the book, and they're all titled, those are all the titles I wanted that my publishers <laughs> rejected. <laughs> so the consolation prize I got was, okay, you can put it as the titles of the section. <laughs> I, and I, I wanted to call it the land of milk and honey, mm. which is a biblical phrase, yeah. but it, it also appears in, in the Quran. And, it, and it, you know, it's the idea of utopia and sort of heaven and yes. Eden. And I think all terrifying projects begin with the idea of an Eden and a mm. utopia. Mm. Um, all of them. Yeah. Uh, of, and, and, then, and then once you've identified your Eden, comes the question of who's allowed into it and who's not. Mm. You know, who makes yeah. the cut and who doesn't. Anyways, that was rejected. So that's, I think, the title of Section 5. And we sent back and forth a lot of titles. And The Runaways is the one we all liked the most because it's, it's, yes. it spoke to this it spoke to a lot of the fear that young people feel. Um, it spoke to a lot of the loneliness mm. um, and the imagining that there is a place where we belong, where we might belong. And, and so that's how we came, we came to the, mm. the title. Yeah. I like it now, I mean. but Yeah, you know. <laughs> I, like, I like the runaways. Um, last question. Mm -hmm. um, I wanted to ask about the way you handle time in the book. Because mm -hmm. um, it's not a straight kind of, chronological sequence of events that you know mm -hmm. you start at the beginning and then you but you you use chronology and time in a very interesting way well I always think that in Asia at least maybe maybe beyond but in, in Asia our sense of time is very different than a western sense of time we don't operate yeah. on this linear idea of beginnings and ends and mm. middles I mean I yeah. I've never <laughs> seen that in operation yeah. anywhere. And so our sense of time is kind of endless. Mm. It has no beginning. It has no middle point. There's no necessity to reach yes. somewhere mm -hmm. by a certain point. Mm -hmm. And that comes from, I, I don't know, our, it's always been there. It's yeah. always been how we think of ourselves as always being. Um, and so that's the way I, I think generally. And so it, it, it wasn't a conscious choice necessarily, but... I, w I didn't feel myself beholden to ideas of yes. when and where and how and felt comfortable enough to move back and forth between mm. them. Yeah. Hmm. yeah, that's beautiful. Um, at this point, I would like to open it up for questions from the audience. If uh, anyone has questions, there is, um, there is a microphone that... Ah, yes, there there's is. someone with a microphone. Um, if you have any questions, just raise your hand and um, the mic will be passed to you. I can talk more about cats. <laughs> Hi, um, thank you so much. I really enjoyed The Runaways. I found it completely gripping. Um, I just wanted to ask you a question about um, de-radicalization and de-radicalizing um, young people who travel to fight. Mm -hmm. and. Um, I was wondering how you kind of square the problem, um, which I see where um, I envisage that the process of de-radicalizing someone hmm. kind of requires some extent of compassion and yes. to, to show that the culture and the country which that person turned their back to isn't maybe what they think it is, isn't what they think it represents. Yeah. But at the same time, how do you see squaring that with someone who goes to fight for something which they know isn't inherently violent or may have themselves committed violent acts, which um, 
requires retribution in that way as well. I just wondered how you see yeah. that process. I think that's a very good question, and I think what you said is very important. It's impossible to de-radicalize without compassion. Mm. Um, and I think, it, again, it depends what, what you consider justice or how you consider justice. Um, justice, um, rather than being uh, retributive, can also rehabilitate. That can be part of the process. I think part of the reason people are so easily radicalized is because they don't find a space for themselves in a society. So you're not going to de-radicalize them by giving them less space than they had initially. Um, you know, even if you, if you look at the case of France, for example, which has struggled with a lot of this, um, you know, young Algerian Moroccan men, are not in, they're not brought into the center mm. of, of culture and life and society. They're kicked out to the edges, to the banlieue, you know, which are the fringe of the fringe of the fringe of society. Um, and then when, when, they, when they express an anger and a violence at their position in society, they're kicked out even further. Mm. Um, I think really the solution has to be not to push them further, but to bring them closer in. Mm. I think if you're, um, who was it? Was it Dostoevsky that said, you can tell a civilization by how they treat their prisoners? Mm. How, do you, how do we think of prison? Is it a place in which we punish people or is it a place in which we reform people? So they absolutely have to be held accountable and, and people have to answer for, for any crimes that they commit. Um, I think the harder question is, what do you do in a society that is so thoroughly subjected to violence? What do you do with countries that have people who are running away to fight in these um, uh, you know, disparate terror groups, but you also have a country that has been at war for the last 19 years, and you have young men coming back from Afghanistan and uh, Iraq completely traumatized and shell-shocked? How do you rehabilitate those men? I mean, the answer is connected, really. You create space for people. You create more mm. space for people to hear yeah. people. Mm. I mean, one of the most shocking things out of this war of terror generation that we have is that more American soldiers die by suicide than by combat injuries. Mm. I mean, I think that speaks very much to the, to the lack of space people feel, mm. whether they're on the right side of violence <coughs> or the wrong side of violence. Mm. Hi, thank we'll you so much for the discussion today. And um, I also really enjoyed your interview on the Hilo podcast, which yeah. is how I came to the book and to your work. So thank you. I was just wondering if you could possibly comment a bit on um, the kind of relationship between gender and victimhood, which is oh. something that's been talked about a lot in the Shamima Begum case, um, that because she's young and female, that mm -hmm. she was a victim, which mm -hmm. kind of takes away her agency. and. Mm -hmm in the media at least, has been quite a patronizing narrative. Um, and I think yeah. in the book, the case of Anita Rose, that she she had her own agency in some yeah. cases, mm. at least in the case with Monty, she was a radicalizer, if that's yeah. the word. Um, but towards the end was also being used by yeah. the organization as a whole uh, in terms of her beauty, her sexuality, um, yeah. in which case she maybe became more of a victim and maybe it's not as black and white victim perpetrator, but I was wondering if you could maybe comment on that in regards to gender as well. Thank you. That's a really good question. I think that um, it's important to know that something like 40% of people running out to join terror groups wherever in the world, whether it's Colombia or it's Iraq, are women. I mean, 40% is an incredible number to think of that. 
And, and I think, again, the women are drawn out to these organizations for the same reason as the young men. Hmm. Um, you know, we, they keep calling them ISIS brides in the, in the paper as though that's their only interest, that they just, hmm. oh, women everywhere just want to get married, you know, and they, they even go to a war zone to do it. But it's not true again. They go out there hmm. for the same reason that they are told um, they will have power. So uh, besides Shamima Begum, there was a young woman called Huda Muthana, who is a young woman from Alabama, I think it was a, a Somali background. And, and she said something incredible. She was asked, and unlike Shamima Begum, you know, she was an inciter of violence. Mm. So she was a propagandist. She didn't just go there to marry. She really went there to, to fight, to draw people mm. into the fight. And she was asked why she went. And she said um, that she, had such, she grew up in such a strict household mm. that her parents didn't let her go to sleepovers. They didn't let her play football. And she ran away to be free. Mm. So that, that sounds completely backwards to a lot of us. Why would you go to ISIS to be free? Mm. But that's what they offered women. They offered them a certain freedom. They offered them a certain power. They offered them mm. a, certain, a certain indisputable strength that will mm. come with, with this violence. Mm. I think at the same time that the line isn't clear because at the same time, we, we are both always. We mm. are victims as well as perpetrators. Um, you know, I, I never really ascribe to the idea that people are good or bad. I think they are good and bad. And I think in a lot of these mm. cases, the young men and women who go out there also are victims of their own violence, are mm. victims of their own um, insecurities that drove them there. Mm. But I think that in, in a narrative that presents, that presents the entirety of a religion as violent, mm. women become a great tool to demonstrate this. And so Muslim women are automatically reduced to victims of their religion, victims of the thinking of the men, mm. um, as just objects that this is all acted upon. Yeah. And I think that they've always had this inherently racist and sexist attitude, but this was the case in which it really expressed itself most clearly. Mm. You know, yeah. they tried it before. Yeah. I mean, they tried all this, you know, they, uh, before you had the women joining ISIS and terror groups, you had the, that rash of books about, oh, I was married and I didn't want to be, right? Mm. What were they, I don't even remember what they were called. You had the, you know, bride at third, I, why, they're always brides actually yes. now that I think about yeah. it. Do you remember, do you know which books I mean? Mm. Those books about like, uh, I was wed to a 75 year old when I was 10 and, you know, the bride of Kabul, the bride of Saudi Arabia. This is a constant. Um, mm. This is a constant, actually. Yeah. Mm. And it, it's, it's profoundly dehumanizing, actually. Hi there. You've touched on this a bit, I think, in the last answer, but I was interested in how much empathy you need to have for characters to write a developed character, because it seems potentially yeah. some of your characters might be difficult to yeah. have empathy <laughs> for, but I just wonder how do you get a really developed character, can you, if you don't have some empathy for them? I don't think you can. I think, I think the act of writing fiction requires a, a profound empathy and compassion for the people you're writing. And that's why you have to spend so much time in their lives in order to understand them before you allow them to do anything upsetting or disturbing. Yeah. I mean, I imagine it probably is like being a mother to children. I mean, mothers love their children no matter what they do, even when they're terrible. Um, and you, 
I don't know. I, I can't, it's difficult to read novels in which you can't sympathize yes. with the character. Mm. Even the most terrible characters have something sympathetic about them. Um, and so I did. And, and actually, uh, Sunny was my favorite when I was writing. And he's indisputably the worst. <laughs> mm. But, I, but I, felt a, I felt a real sadness for, for him, for the fact that this is a character that never had a chance to be anything else. That any time he attempted, he, was, he felt hurt or was hurt. Mm. And, and so I sympathized with him really right till the end. Yeah, that comes through in the book. Um, you as the author, the sympathy and empathy that you have for the characters really comes through, makes, makes it more engaging. I didn't empathize. I, I mean, I read the one I like the least is Monty, mm -hmm. <laughs> who is probably the most innocent of the bunch. Yeah. I found yeah. it really hard to empathize with. I had to push myself <laughs> to understand him because I just thought he was such a drip <laughs> most of the time. You know, but I think that's the case is that we don't, you know, the banality of evil, we don't, we don't do terrible things because we're terrible people. Yeah. We do terrible things sometimes out of thoughtlessness, out of longing, out of hopes even. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Uh, there's a question here. Yes, thank you. Um, the New Zealand shooting, mm. it was a deliberate policy on behalf of the New Zealand government mm. to keep the name of the person quiet and not in the media so that they wouldn't get media attention. Mm. And you're also talking about Facebook taking things down, etc. Mm. All of which gives them less space to be heard. Mm. Um, so it seems like, do you take it down and forbid the name to be uh, mm. handed out, mm. which gives them less space, or would that, does that make them do something else instead? Mm. Do you understand? Mm. Yeah, th no, that's a very important question. And I think what you've said is, it's so necessary for us to ask. Um, I, I would agree with you to say, deprive them of oxygen, but then do it across the board. So there's a, there's a reason that today sitting with you, I don't know the name of the guy who did the El Paso shooting. It's been a purposeful act yes. not to report it. Mm -hmm. But any brown or black person that is involved in violence, I know the picture, I know what he looks like, I see his face everywhere, I know his name, I know almost his parents' name, you know. Um, they, don't, they don't do that for everyone. I mean, in, mm. in the case of the New Zealand shooter, one of the most incredible things was the Daily Mail. In the immediate aftermath, had this incredible front page, which was of this angelic little boy with blue eyes and a floppy blonde mm. fringe. And it was, you know, what happened to this beautiful cherub to make him mow down these people? I've never seen Osama bin Laden's baby picture. <laughs> you know, I mean, if this is the policy that anytime somebody kills 50 people, we put his baby picture up, then okay, but let's do it for everybody yeah. then, you know. Mm -hmm. And the Daily Mail answered its own question. What, was, what happened to him? Well, he traveled to places like Pakistan, North Korea, you know, that radicalized him. So it's our fault also that we radicalized him. Mm. And, and I think that, you know, I'm all for depriving them of oxygen. I think, however, it's... It's very hard to deprive people of oxygen in the age we live in today. Mm. So even the El Paso case, I keep mentioning it because it's so recent. Um, you know, you f I found his manifesto within two seconds of looking for it, mm. even though a lot of the news outlets refused to quote from it um, in order not to propagate his ideas. But again, the thing that we're leaving out of that is that there are world leaders propagating his ideas. Mm. So, okay, we'll hide his manifesto, but what do you do with Trump's tweets? 
You know, what, what, do you do, what do you do with Salvini in Italy, who has mm. criminalized the act of helping a drowning migrant? Mm. Um, I think it's impossible, really, to hide information today. So mm. the only thing we can do is to be just with it and to apply the same language to everybody. Mm. Um, and I th also, you know, I, I, I went and read all those manifestos. I, I, I'm not tweeting that, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't share it. Yeah. But I think it's important for us to know at the same time, mm. you know, the societies we live in, what are the things that are mm. roiling people? I think that is important to know. Mm. But it's a very tricky balance, I would agree. Yeah. Just on um, the radicalization of the New Zealand shooter, he was actually radicalized in Australia. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I live in Australia and there, there, was, there has been a lot of discussion about how Australia should be taking responsibility yeah. for his radicalization. That's right. Yeah, look up, yeah. And, and, and one other thing, you know, again, when, whenever the person is of Asian extraction um, or African extraction, they always tell you like, oh, they went to fight in wherever, Afghanistan, or they went and they joined training camps. What they don't tell you is about all these young white men going to Ukraine. I think Brenton Tarrant did go to Ukraine yeah. to fight with these kind of neo-Nazi militias. So... This is a whole other side of the story that's, I wouldn't even say underreported, it's just not reported. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And they're going out and it's, it's the same kind of, I mean, it, it's exactly the same process yes. of radicalization, mm -hmm. down to the going to foreign countries to fight yes. amongst your own yeah. sort of kind. Yes. Thank you. Um, I wanted to ask a question which might be a, quite a very big question, and that really is the place of literature mm -hmm. in society mm -hmm. in terms of trying to affect change. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, it, you know, it was, it was very striking and yeah. it clearly had lots of resonance when in your last response you talked about what yeah. do we do about Trump's tweets and mm. therefore the culpability yeah. of politicians and leaders in terms of also providing oxygen um, for, for these kinds of ideas of hatred. Um, and again, I'm thinking back to when you were doing your readings earlier on and you talked about um, the role of Fez yes. and you know, and other great writers and yes. artists in terms of um, how they try to use their creativity and their art. Yeah. Um, not necessarily deliberately, but sometimes they find themselves in a position where because of the nature of the society they live in, they have, they have no choice yeah. but to use their art to try to pose questions, provide a critique, etc., and therefore maybe try to see whether or not some kind of change can come through that avenue. Um, and I'm, I'm asking this question particularly because of your yeah. novel right yeah. now, yeah. because it is so deeply profound. Um, and particularly in terms of how it will be read by a certain type of audience who will very willingly yeah. embrace it completely. Yeah. But I'm also sort of thinking in terms of what about those sorts of um, layers of people who are resistant to such ideas, particularly those, and I'm not just politicians, yeah. but others who do buy into a very simplistic black sure. and white version sure. of what they see hatred and radicalization mm. as being. Um, so, I mean, yeah. uh, and I know perhaps it's a very unfair question as well to ask the very good author about questions. what role literature might play in this. Yeah, they're very good questions. I mean, I, I, I ascribe to the idea that everything... If you, if you live in, engaged in the world is a political act. Um, I don't really think there, are any, there is anything that is not a political act. Um, I think literature is a profound way of, of interrogation, of intervention, of solidarity, of questioning. 
And I, I come from a culture again in which it, it has always been that way. Um, I grew up in, in Syria, and the same thing was true of Syria again. You know, Nizar Abani, who is a famous Syrian poet, wrote beautifully about fear, about occupation, about liberty, what it meant to be free. And so I think there is a requirement in a, in a sense, but it also feels kind of ev uh, uneven, you know, that writers from the global south are required to always address the politics of their countries. Um, we can't just write novels about, you know, unhappy housewives, for example. <laughs> but, you know, American or English or Swiss writers can, are allowed, they have the space to just write novels about unhappy housewives, even though they are also countries that have been at war for 20 years, that have militarized societies mm. in many ways, that, that endure and suffer as much violence as, as anyone. Um, and, and that is difficult. Mm. At the same time, if you're going to write the story of an unhappy housewife in New Delhi, I think it would be impossible not, mm. not to include all the different tension around her. Some of yeah. that will be class, and some of that will be politics, and some yes. of that... It won't just be personal. Mm. Um, but yeah, that's a very good question. Uh, at the same time, I'm trying to think what was the last book I read by an Asian person that didn't have politics in it. Speed <laughs> it doesn't exist. I can't. I can't. But that is the writing I'm drawn to. Mm. I mean, I'm curious about that kind of writing. I want to know um, what disturbs people. Mm. And so I'm... Um, I, I would subscribe to that. I don't think it needs to. I don't think writing needs to be polemical, mm. necessarily, but I think it should be political. Mm. Yeah. Uh, and I think we have time for one more question. Yeah. Oh, hello. Um, Hi. So you said that part of the reason people become radicalized is because they don't have a platform in which mm. to express themselves in society. Mm. Um, is it possible to give everybody such a platform, especially since you're saying with like mm. millennials that they want fame and vitality? Mm. Um, is it possible for everybody to have such a platform? And yeah. sort of, is there a way in which we can sort of solve this problem or you know tackle the problem from the root? Yeah, you all have such good questions. This almost never happens at literary festivals. <laughs> um, but, but you're right, it, it is a kind of impossible ask, right? But, but I think uh, on some level, these things are possible, maybe not on the macro level, but on the micro. You know, it takes a teacher at school to pay attention to someone yeah. who seems confused. That, that can often be a profoundly powerful act, the sympathy of a teacher or of a friend, the compassion and care of a peer. So, of course, ideally, governments would, would allow us all an equal voice, would allow us all to be felt and heard in the same way. They can't. And so it, it, it is on us, I think. We are, we are responsible in some ways in order to be kind and just people in our interactions with, with mm. the world we encounter. And, you know, I think as well, if you're a person who comes from a migrant background, let's say, and you're growing up in the West, there are so many ways in which you are, meant to, you are made to feel invisible or you are patronized and spoken down to that is considered normal. You know, and we, we were talking about this today, you know, when, when people lean over you um, to get something as though you're not there, yeah. you know, when people 
I mean, they say mansplaining a lot. I always say like Western-splaining, you know. <laughs> People will be like, oh, you know, this is how democracy works. Like, oh, yeah. I didn't ask you, you know. Or, <laughs> or, they, or they will try and explain concepts to you. And I mean, it happens with the best of intentions, you know. I, I will mm. have conversations with friends who are European and, or um, English, and they'll say to me, well, you wouldn't understand that, though. Mm. Why wouldn't I? You know, well, you don't have our experience. Yes, but your experience is not central to mm. the world. You know, and I always have this, this conversation with a friend specifically <laughs> about Winston Churchill. You know, I have a very, very close English friend. And for her, Winston Churchill is a hero. Yeah. And I say, well, if you are South Asian, mm. he's a villain. Mm. You know, there are three million dead Bengalis yeah. because of actions that Winston Churchill took. Mm. And she said, yes, but he saved us from the war. No, he saved you from the war. <laughs> you know, he didn't save me from any war. <laughs> You know, mm. he brought a certain kind of war to our doorsteps. So mm. yeah. I think the understanding that one's experience is central is so alienating mm. when you encounter people who are not like you. Yes. That, that in those ways, I think we can be equitable and fair mm. to others. And that's easy, but it requires us to unlearn certain ideas we hold of ourselves. Yes, absolutely. And on that very profound and beautiful note, please join me in thanking the oh. amazing Fatima Bhutto. And it is thank such you. an honor. Thank, thank you. you. And thank you all. Thank you all for coming. Fatima will be signing books. Fatima will be signing these books and her other books um, in the Garden Bookshop. And we're we are going to proceed to the Garden Bookshop. So let's. We can all go together. We can all go together. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Thank you for listening. Find out more about the Book Festival at edbookfest.co.uk and keep up to date on events, booking information and more by following us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Just search at edbookfest. The Edinburgh International Book Festival takes place every August in Charlotte Square Gardens.